welcome to the latest episode of Public Power Now. I'm Paul Schimpoli, News Director at APPA. Our guest in this episode is Jim Rock, President and CEO of the North American Electric Reliability Corporation, or NERC. Jim, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Uh, thanks, Paul. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. So, Jim, um, to get our conversation started, I um, wanted to focus on um, NERC's 2022 Summer Reliability Assessment, which was released in May. Um, now, as you know, the assessment warned that several parts of North America were at elevated or high risk of energy shortfalls this summer. Could you provide additional details on what you see as a key reliability risk that the assessment highlighted? Sure. It's a, it's a great and very timely question, and we have certainly hit a nerve with the summer reliability assessment this year, given the amount of both media attention, but, but more importantly, attention from the government on, uh, on issues that we've highlighted. And, and there are really three major drivers of the risk assessment that we did for the summer. Uh, you know, and they're, they're basically, it's the weather outlook, the transformation of the grid, and the amount of economic growth we're seeing around the country. Let me unpack that for you for, for just a second. On, on the weather outlook, uh, if you look at what NOAA has uh, projected for the summer and uh, pretty similar uh, uh, forecast from the uh, Canadian uh, counterpart, is that we're really looking at hotter than normal temperatures across most of the western two-thirds of the continent and also in the northeast. Um, and weather is obviously very, very important uh, because summer loads very much follow uh, the temperature because of, uh, of air conditioning. The, the second issue that's really problematic about the weather outlook is the continued drought conditions uh, across the western U.S. and western Canada as well. And, and, and drought is important for a couple of reasons. One, it uh, reduces the amount of hydroelectric power that's available for, uh, for generation but it also impacts the ability of traditional plants, thermal plants to operate, uh, which is an issue we saw pr uh, particularly pronounced in the uh, SPP region of the country because of anticipated uh, reduced flows on the Missouri River. Um, so that's a, a derivative impact of, uh, uh, of drought is also affecting thermal generation across the, uh, across the Midwest. The, the, the second issue is uh, the transformation of the grid. And there are really four things going on here that are important to keep our eye on. The first is we're seeing what we've termed a, a disorderly retirement of traditional generation. There's no surprise to anybody that we've been adding large amounts of wind and solar generation to the grid. And the vast majority of the uh, uh, resource additions to the grid have been wind and solar. Uh, but we're also seeing a very rapid retirement of what we call traditional generation, particularly coal and nuclear that are finding it difficult to compete in this, uh, in this new environment. And, and the issue we run into is until we have all the other uh, resources in place to integrate wind and solar, it's really important to have that firm fuel backup uh, generation in the uh, in the mix. And we've kind of gotten a little bit ahead of ourselves in terms of the retirement of some generation while we're adding lots of new generation to the mix. The, the second issue is that that characteristics of that new generation is that the energy production is variable. Uh, it's variable with weather. Um, and, and so therefore you can't count on it, you know, every minute of every hour of every day. We know in, the, in general it's going to be there, but we don't know exactly when. And that's one of the reasons why we've made a big call for being thoughtful about the pace of the transition, given the need to integrate these resources into the grid. 
uh, you know, once we have batteries uh, deployed at very, very large scale uh, or other forms of flexible fuels to uh, integrate that generation, it really reinforces the importance of natural gas uh, as a very flexible resource to uh, be able to integrate that uh, that new generation. And, and that's the third issue is that our dependence on natural gas has grown significantly over the last several years. Um, and, and a big part of that is because of the flexibility needs that the uh, grid needs to have to accommodate the wind and solar generation that's uh, that's coming onto the grid. And, and then the third issue is just good old fashioned economic growth. Uh, we've seen a rebound in economies uh, coming out of the uh, pandemic, and we've seen some population migration uh, to certain places like, for example, Texas, uh, which is also driving you know increased consumption there at a time when they have their uh, issues with uh, with drought and uh, and the change in the in the resource mix as well. So all of those are combining together to create this map that's been uh, shared uh, in multiple places uh, of, of the outlook for the for the year or for the summer. And, and, and that shows the western two-thirds of the continent at elevated risk of energy shortfalls and the Midwest part of the continent, particularly the northern part of MISO, uh, at, a, at, a, at a high risk of energy shortfall. Great. Yeah, um, just one quick follow-up question with respect to the generate uh, the grid transition. One, one thing that that um, caught my attention in your response was the, the idea of getting ahead of ourselves in terms of the transition and mentioned coal and nuclear. I mean, so as you know, like Diablo Canyon in Cal California, it looks like that could potentially, the change for that, uh, the plans for, for the retirement for that plant may be, I guess, in flux at this point. And then, and with with rising natural gas prices, um, it, it seems like there's some operators who who wish you know maybe coal could be an option, but it's not there as much as it used to be because of all these retirements. Do, so, do you have any sense in terms of if there's kind of a um, kind of a second look at, uh, in terms of some of those generation options? Yeah, it, it's it's very very hard to project exactly how this will all play out. But one right. of the things that I've been advocating for when I uh, get a chance to talk with folks is that uh, the energy system is always needed to create balance. Um, you always need to balance the, uh, the the accessibility and affordability of energy uh, with its environmental footprint um, and balance with the reliability of the uh, of the system. And, and I think a case could be made that over the last several years, we've gotten out of balance, right? We focused very, very much on decarbonization, which is very important given the uh, uh, given all the environmental concerns around uh, uh, CO2 emissions and, uh, and and climate change. But we can't make that transition any faster than the rest of the grid can absorb it because affordability and reliability are equally important. And, and I think when the industry gets itself into problems is when we get out of balance. So I think there's a natural tendency here to try to rebalance uh, priorities. Um, and I think the summer reliability assessment we produced this year has done that. I think it's highlighted the issues around uh, reliability in California. And uh, I think it's terrific that California and the governor is looking at ways to potentially extend uh, Diablo Canyon's life uh, for, uh, for another, uh, for another few years. Um, I think there are some plants in the Midwest that I think a lot of people would wish that we had invested more in, uh, and were able to retain longer than, uh, than we have. So, yeah, I do think that there's a, a rethink of some of these 
And, and one of our goals right now is to have our eyes far enough down the road that we can start to highlight some of these issues for people to take action on, uh, but not in a crisis moment as we c- could find ourselves in later this summer. Great. Thanks, Jim. Um, so we're in July now when we're recording this. Um, so just wanted to get your thoughts in terms of where, where you think we're at in terms of the U.S. power grid, how it's performed so far this summer uh, in response to, you know, we've already had some periods of very high temperatures and increased power demand. Yeah. No, the, the, the wildfire season uh, started with a bang uh, and much earlier than, uh, th- than expected. And uh, that, that can be problematic for the grid because of the potential for it to affect transmission assets, uh, either preemptive uh, taking transmission assets out of service or they get taken out of service because they're, uh, they're near a fire. Um, so that's that, that's off to a robust start. We've all seen the pictures of the Colorado River and the drought conditions that uh, the Colorado R- River Basin is uh, is experiencing. We have seen a couple uh, unplanned load sheds in the western U.S., uh, which are uh, we're, we're, we're somewhat heat related, but not uh, specifically tied to, uh, to to the temperature forecast. Uh, in general, I'd say the grid has held up fine, but it's very early in the summer, right? We're, we're here in early July, and the real strain period for the grid is going to come in, uh, in in August and early September, particularly in the West. So I would by no means say that we're out of the woods, but, uh, but so far the grid operators have been able to uh, arrange their generation fleets to be able to meet the demand that they've uh, that they've seen. Switching gears here a little bit. Um, so as you know, supply chain issues um, are, are, are an ongoing concern throughout the U.S. economy and, and the utility sector is no exception to that. Um, so we'd love to get your, your perspective in terms of how concerned NERC is at this point about supply chain challenges facing the power sector as it relates to potential reliability issues. And I had a follow up after that. Sure. No, I, th- I, I think everybody's concerned about supply chain in, uh, in a number of areas. Uh, one, just the physical availability of equipment, and then also the potential risks associated with our uh, increasing reliance on foreign supply. Of, uh, of of important uh, components, particularly chips, uh, which have turned out to be uh, really problematic for things such as relay production uh, and inverter uh, manufacturing, and also uh, transformers. Um, you know, but it, fuel is an issue. Uh, you know, we're seeing issues in uh, the South with uh, coal deliveries uh, and coal piles uh, in front of the. Uh, coal power plants uh, dwindling down to 15 to 17 days, which is you know well below the 30 days that we like to see at a coal plant. Um, there are concerns around uh, nuclear fuel, uh, largely because of the importance of Russia as a uh, supplier of nuclear fuel. So the the supply chain issues are all over the place uh, facing the uh, facing the industry. Uh, we were pretty gratified um, a few weeks ago when the Biden administration backed off of the uh, potential application of tariffs for solar panels. Uh, I think there were four Asian countries that uh, were believed to be subverting uh, uh, some of the tariffs that were applied to uh, Chinese manufactured uh, panels. But given the importance of getting some of those panels onto the grid for the peak summer season, uh, it was terrific to see those uh, tariffs uh, suspended or at least deferred. 
uh, for the time being. We've also had a robust conversation with the Department of Energy uh, through the ESCC on uh, greater issues around supply chain. Uh, you saw there was an order from the uh, uh, administration a few weeks ago uh, looking to apply the Defense Production Act to uh, certain uh, electric grid components. Now, that's not going to be an immediate fix, you know, creating a, the ability to manufacture a, a particular chip or a transformer when you don't have the manufacturing capacity in place today. We're not going to turn on a dime like we did with uh, uh, ventilators a few years ago. But I think that highlights the administration's actions and concerns around uh, supply chain and, and the real need to uh, gain control of how we uh, uh, pr produce and provide critical components to the electric system. So I think there's good news here, but it's not going to be a quick fix. Uh, we, we're going to have several years where we're going to be, I think, challenged by the uh, uh, constrictions in the supply chain that we're seeing right now. Yeah, you um, you read my mind in terms of that, that last part of your answer is that, that, I mean, it sounds like there's no real visibility as to when this may resolve itself or get better at this point. No, I, and I think it's dependent on a number of things. One, the, just the supply of certain components, right, that got um, severely constricted during the pandemic. And I'm thinking here particularly chips out of uh, computer chips out of uh, out of Asia, it's going to take a while to rebuild that uh, capacity and the inventories that are required. And then in the U.S., I think we're just seeing, uh, you know, labor shortages. And I think that's uh, what we're hearing is that that's a big part of the issue with the uh, coal deliveries uh, is that the railroads just aren't aren't staffed to be able to uh, to meet the demand um, because of retirements that occurred during the pandemic and the fact that there's just been a real rebound here in uh, in, in, in stresses on the system. And um, with respect to um, what you alluded to um, in terms of the robust uh, communication with DOE. Um, besides that, are, are there any other activities NERC is doing in terms of trying to trying to keep a handle on the supply chain challenges? Yeah, we uh, we convene uh, regular calls with the reliability coordinators across the uh, across the continent uh, to stay abreast on issues that they're seeing. Uh, that's where we got some of our intel around the coal supply. Uh, issues that I uh, that I alluded to, uh, you know, we're also you know highly involved with uh, Department of Energy, uh, Homeland Security, all of the agencies that uh, re review and track this uh, type of activity, as well as engagement with the manufacturers themselves. Um, you know, whether that's the relay manufacturers like Schneider or Schweitzer uh, or the uh, transformer manufacturers to understand the issues that uh, that they have and that that they're experiencing. So we try to we try to stay on top of it, and we try to make sure that industry remains aware of uh, of issues. We do that through uh, our NERC alert system, uh, as well as through the uh, EISAC. And, and whenever we have a chance to uh, to make the point about the importance of prioritizing uh, components for the electric system, we absolutely do. Uh, as uh, as my friend Tom Fanning at the Southern Company says, the electric grid is uh, 7% of the economy, but it's the first 7%. So without the electric system, not much else works. So it makes sense to prioritize deliveries and production for this sector. Okay. Um, so... We've covered a lot of ground in terms of the summer and, and 
the liability challenges that can crop up during this time of year. But as you know, um, you know, unfortunately, other times of the year can also create our reliability challenges. And um, many public power utilities were adversely impacted by winter storm Uri in early 2021. And as you know, FERC and NERC staff issued a report uh, in late 2021 analyzing the causes of outages during the event and making a number of recommendations, including for new or revised NERC reliability standards. Um, so I wanted to see if you could provide an update on where things stand in terms of considering and implementing um, that report's recommendations. Yeah, uh, a great question and a very timely one as we uh, start to pivot our focus from the summer. Uh, and start thinking about the issues we'll see this winter and winters going forward. And, and I think one of the things we learned out of Winter Storm Uri is that uh, winter demand is much more difficult to uh, forecast than summer demand, uh, particularly in the in the southern third of the country where you have a lot of heat pumps, where uh, when you have cold weather uh, that the heat pumps can't keep up with, they, they convert to electric strip heating, which is not very efficient, but also uh, kind of creates uh, unusual demand spikes. And we saw that in Texas in, uh, in, in 2021. I, I would say a couple things. If you look at the, uh, the root causes of the failures in, uh, during winter storm Uri, I, I kind of bucket them into two. Uh, you know, one was the the fact that that much of the system wasn't winterized, uh, certainly wasn't winterized to the level that would allow generating plants of all types uh, to be able to perform uh, during such extreme cold conditions. The other issue is the complete failure of the electric system and the gas system to appropriately coordinate. Um, and, uh, and, and as you kind of read through that report, you'll see many places where uh, there are examples of where the electric system took action that made it harder for the gas system to perform. And, and, the, and the, the opposite was true, too. The, the gas system took actions that made it really difficult for the, uh, for the electric system to perform. And, and really, at the end of the day, we need to start thinking about gas and electric as almost one unified system. Uh, and again, that's really important because gas is kind of the fuel that keeps the lights on these days. You know, on the winterization side, I think within the scope of our authorities, which is the, uh, you know, the, the, the generating plants forward, um, I think I feel pretty good about where we are in terms of implementing the uh, recommendations out of the, uh, out of the report. Uh, we had the first round of winterization standards, uh, which were actually triggered by the 2018 cold weather event, uh, were approved by our board, approved by FERC uh, last year, and will become effective next year. Um, and we knew that there were a number of modifications that were going to need to be made um, coming out of the Winter Storm URI report. And we have drafting teams working on those as we speak. And our goal is to get those to our board for approval uh, by, uh, by September of this year, I believe, and then submitted to FERC for their, uh, for their approval shortly thereafter. And I think we would say that in general, those are moving along the way we would hope. Um, there are a few bumps along the way, as there always are when you're uh, implementing a new type of standard, but, um, but I'm very optimistic that we'll get that work done. Where I'm not as optimistic is uh, whether we've really broken the back of the natural gas electric system interface. Um, that's really, really important. And uh, the way I look at it, if you think about the uh, situation we faced in uh, winter storm URI, having a well-winterized electric system 
dependent on a natural gas system that isn't winterized to the same level of performance is going to is just a recipe for, for for future failures. So that's one very important issue. And then the second is we don't yet have a great mechanism for coordinating the uh, activities of the gas system with the needs of the electric system. And, uh, and, and this has been an issue that I've described as the most admired problem in the energy sector, and it is. Um, it's a very, very hard problem to solve, um, and one that you know, multiple people have taken attempts to, uh, to run to ground and, and have not really gotten across the goal line. And it's one of the issues that uh, Chairman Glick and I uh, share a real passion around figuring out how we're going to, uh, to to break the back of that problem when our jurisdictions don't really allow us to solve it through you know a stroke of a pen. Um, and uh, I, I think that's going to be the one issue that will continue to vex us as we go forward is uh, really trying to make sure that uh, that the gas system and the electric system are planned and operated share situation awareness uh, information and, and coordinate their operations in such a way that uh, that the electric system starts to take priority in uh, a number of things that the gas system does, which, which right now isn't really the case. So would it be fair to say in terms of the gas electric coordination issue that, that some progress has been made in the last couple of years, but obviously it's a uh, work in progress? I, I would say it's definitely a work in progress, and and I think there's I think there is shared awareness, and, and and when I when I talk about this, I sometimes get accused of putting the gas industry and in, 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 cast the gas industry in a bad light, and I don't mean to do that at all. I, I think the natural gas industry is extraordinary at its ability to perform against what it was designed to do, which is to keep gas in front of the LDCs to keep pilot lights lit. Uh, they're enormously reliable on that front. The issue is, is that electric demand on the gas system has grown significantly. The needs of the electric customer is very, very different than the need of the natural gas customer. And we don't yet have the policy framework in place um, to, to really enable the, the, the right level of oversight, uh, regulation and coordination between the two sectors. If it was an easy problem, it would have been solved a long time ago. And, and I think what we're seeing is that it's just a really very, very hard problem with well-intentioned people, you know, all around the table wanting to do the right thing. But the gas industry operates under a very different construct than the electric industry does. And, and that's what we need to figure out how to rectify. So staying on, on the topic of, of the natural gas sector, um, FERC is currently considering changes to its policies for approving new interstate gas pipeline facilities. Do you think the U.S. is building enough gas pipeline capacity, and do you have any thoughts on the impacts that FERC's proposed policy changes um, might have on building new pipeline infrastructure? Yeah, I can't really comment uh, authoritatively on the on the FERC's policy changes and how that will affect the uh, ability to get pipeline assets uh, cited and built. But I think it's clear that we're not uh, reinforcing the gas system in the way that it needs to be reinforced. And, uh, you know, a case in point is to look at New England. If there was ever a um, uh, energy market in, uh, in, in North America that desperately needs more natural gas supply capability, it's New England. And, uh, you know, there have been lots of attempts to uh, build new infrastructure into New England, and it's just, they, none of them have gotten really across the goal line. But it's not just pipe in the ground. Uh, Natural gas storage has also emerged as a really important asset, particularly if it's in the market area. 
Uh, we saw this in spades when the uh, Liso Canyon uh, storage facility in Southern California was compromised uh, back in uh, 2016, 2017, I believe. And, and, the, and the issue that we really uncovered there was the role of gas storage in providing a buffer between the power plants in a market with a lot of solar penetration, where when those power plants have to fire up in the afternoon to compensate for the drop-off in solar production, they will suck gas out of the local distribution system much faster than the pipelines can pack it in. And gas storage plays an important buffer, almost a shock absorber between the two systems. Um, and I think as we see more and more solar developed in uh, places like uh, North Carolina, even in Massachusetts, uh, in Texas, I think we're going to see more and more demands on uh, the need for gas, uh, gas storage uh, to provide that kind of shock absorber buffering uh, flexibility that's required, as we're seeing in California right now. We'll see the same issue develop in Phoenix, and uh, Phoenix doesn't have uh, much, if any, gas storage uh, capability. And I think as solar production continues to uh, ramp up in the desert southwest, that's going to become uh, an, an increasing issue for us to uh, pay attention to. And of course, the issue with all of this is these projects don't spring up overnight, right? They're, it's a very cumbersome project uh, process to uh, design, engineer, get necessarily approvals, get construction permits, and, and, and so forth. And, and our country is going to find itself uh, infrastructure short in general if we don't figure out how to break the back of, uh, of siting needed in energy infrastructure. I know you have a lot on your plate these days as is indicative of our, our conversation today. So I can't thank you enough for joining us on the podcast. And um, we would love to have you back as a guest, um, perhaps in early 2023 after the, uh, after the winter period of uh, the, um, how, how the power, power system reacts during that time frame. So um, we'd love to have you back. Well, well, Paul, thank you for the opportunity to share some thoughts uh, with you and your audience. And uh, I'd be delighted to come back and look at look back on a very successful summer and a very successful winter uh, dealing with uh, all the uncertainties we have in front of us. Terrific. Thanks for listening to this episode of Public Power Now, which comes to you from the American Public Power Association as produced by APPA Digital Content Director David Blaylock. I'm Paul Schimpoli, and We'll be back next week with more from the world of public power and the electric sector.